This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Coming up in the second half of today's show, national recognition for a longtime drama teacher and speech coach. But we are going to start today with a phrase that was first written in a play about journalism but is often used in the world of art, and that is to make a body of work that comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. We are going to talk today with an intuitive abstract artist, Medora Fry, out with a new book called These Are My Flowers, My Story of Composting Trauma into Colorful Art. Medora, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Ashley. So hearing a phrase like a body of work meant to comfort the afflicted and right away in the subtitle of your book, Composting Trauma into Colorful Art, we'll start with uh, the fact that this book is a work of beauty that comes out of some pain. There is uh, both a condition and some childhood concerns uh, that you are working through uh, in this book. Let's start with... What is cystic fibrosis? Yeah, so cystic fibrosis is a genetic disorder. So it's something that, you know, you are, you are born with. You have two mutated gene copies of, it's actually called a CFTR uh, protein. And so essentially what that means is that like sodium chloride can't pass through the channel of the cell. So it, what that does to the actual body is it creates thick, sticky mucus, um, really anywhere that your body creates mucus. So like the lungs, the pancreas, the GI tract. Um, and over time, mucus kind of invades the body in, in that way, right? So normally, if you have enough salt or you know sodium chloride in your system, your body kind of takes away that mucus at a more normal level. And if you have CF, you don't have that. So that mucus really gets thick and sticky and it creates um, scarring of the pancreas and then uh, scarring and just mucus buildup of the lungs, which makes it incredibly hard to breathe over time and makes uh, lung infections really persistent because that bacteria ends up, um, you know, getting into that mucus and infecting that. And so normally in the past the life expectancy for people with CF, it it was often just considered a childhood disease because many people did not really survive past maybe 10 um, or even, you know, younger. Thankfully, over time, there's been a lot of treatments that have helped with that, but it's still not a cured disease. So it's, you have it genetically and then you'll, you'll pretty much just have it forever. And unless they, you know, create um, science that's able to cure that. So in the book, you have a poem about working out, and, and part of it is, I remember many times after a hard workout, my skin being coated with glistening white crystals of salt and never thinking twice about it. Why, Medora, did it take so long to get a diagnosis? Yeah, so my case was kind of strange. And so for me, I actually was not diagnosed with CF until I was 18, which is really strange, you know, considering that it is a genetic disease. Um, But I was born before what's called newborn screening was a thing. So these days, normally, I think after the year maybe 2000, most people are diagnosed pretty much at birth or maybe like you know, a few months later. But since I was born before that screening happened, we had no, you know, known family history of anybody else ever having CF. Um, It was, you know, it was just unthinkable in a way that I would even have it. And so the other part of it for me was that my lungs were and still are quite, you know, relatively healthy compared to most other people with CF. So I had had some other symptoms like lots of sinus issues lots of GI issues, but because my lungs were healthy, I don't think, you know, that, that wasn't normally with CF in a classic CF sim- like symptoms, um, that would, you know, be one of the major red flags is if you were having a lot of lung or breathing issues. And since I, for the most part really wasn't, except for maybe like exercise induced asthma is kind of what they said I had. Mm. Um, other than that, I didn't have any other symptoms. And so it took, a lot longer for me to be 
diagnosed and that whole process um, took at least six months, if not more, um, during the during my senior year of high school. And it was, yeah, just constantly seeing specialists and everybody being very confused and, you know, lots of testing happening and nobody really knew what was wrong with me. And finally, a doctor had put together the all of the different symptoms that I was having, along with the fact that I had had two sinus surgeries when I was 14 and 15 years old. Mm. And I had nasal polyps, which I guess normally only like 80 year old people have. And so um, the doctors at that time were quite confused, but didn't, you know, nobody had really put it together. And so then finally they did a sweat test. And that is essentially where they just put a solution on your skin. It makes you sweat. um, And then they collect that sweat and test it for that sodium chloride. So people with CF, because like I was saying earlier, essentially that salt rather than actually going through the body and you know, doing what it's supposed to, to help clear that mucus, it kind of essentially just gets sweated out of your skin. And that is what makes people with CF, their, their, uh, sweat really salty. And then their, you know, their skin very salty and you can even, yeah, see those sweat crystals on the skin and everything. So it's kind of, yeah, kind of crazy. (laughs) A diagnosis can be very helpful. It can give you tools or at least understanding. It can also uh, oftentimes with a chronic condition, especially one uh, for which there is no cure, uh, be feeling more like a, you know, a sentence. You write in the book, These Are My Flowers, My Story of Composting Trauma into Colorful Art, um, that the diagnosis actually brought on a lot of suicidal ideation for you. Could you read for us the poem, The Thought? I sure can. Um, So, The Thought. The first time I thought about it, I was in my car, sitting in my driveway, alone. July. I was 18. I know where he keeps it, conceals it. It could be quick, almost painless. Or maybe the capsules discarded from surgery. Maybe I'll wait. Maybe I'm too tired. Maybe it's the pills the doctor prescribed. I I don't know what they were for, or that one of the side effects could be making these feelings stronger. In my car in the driveway, returning from a movie I watched alone in a theater, where in a couple years, I'll go on a date where my future brother-in-law works. He was probably working in the theater that day, the first time I thought about it. After the movie, in my driveway, making a plan. Maybe I wasn't alone. My mind just couldn't see all the good things to come. I forgive my past self for all the things I could not see, but thank myself for not following through. Future me will never forget the feeling of sitting in that driveway. That is The Thought by artist Medora Fry. Her new book is called These Are My Flowers, My Story of Composting Trauma into Colorful Art. You can find out more about the book at MedoraFry.com. And the last name is spelled F-R-E-I. Medora, one of the uh, blurbs on the book says, Medora Fry pays homage to duality of grief and joy. This thought that there can't be one of those emotions without the other. And uh, I think you start to walk that line in a poem that that starts with suicide and, and ends with hope. How long did it take you to accept that you don't get to have joy without going through the grief? Oh, um, well, a long time. (laughs) I I think I still, to this day, kind of, you know, continue to work through that. But I think really the first realization happened not long after I, you know, kind of had these, I guess you would say, first suicidal ideation type thoughts. Um, But I think... You know, for me, it's it's hard and it was kind of a difficult thing to write about. And I feel like not many people kind of know that. But, but essentially what had happened with me or a lot of my story was I, I really started to feel a lot of grief over my childhood. And, you know, having this genetic disease that I didn't know about, I kind of, you know, I was like, wow, I don't I don't know myself. You know, this this was a huge 
you know, part of my, my literal DNA and like, you know, having mutated DNA and I had no idea. And so I think there was a part of grief from trying to work through that, but then also trying to, you know, physically all the things that I was going through at the time of diagnosis and all the procedures and testing and appointments, it was really overwhelming. And that's kind of another thing that I write about was how I was feeling, you know, these obviously very difficult thoughts, but then trying to also want to, you know, feel better and, and do these procedures and whatnot to feel better and like the the fight to, I guess you would say, live at the same time. So it was kind of, I, th- I think throughout that process of, you know, my main thing was that I just wanted the hurt to stop. And thankfully mm-hmm. for me, I chose trying to make that happen through treatments and, you, you know, doing like now, you know, doing breathing treatments, doing the procedures and, and appointments and medicines and everything that I needed to do to feel better rather than, than I guess, going the other way. It's a way to put it. Yeah. You write through your traumas, but you also paint uh, using mostly acrylics, sometimes pastels and pencils. You call yourself an intuitive artist. What, is, what does that mean? Yeah, so for me, that means just that the way that I paint is, you know, very, very intuitive, very, I guess I would also say emotion-based. For the most part, I don't really have any sort of plan when I start painting. Sometimes Mm. I kind of have a color palette and sometimes I don't, or I start with a color palette and then it ends up most of the time being kind of rainbow colored or very bright, you know, bright colors, even if I just start with maybe two more muted tones. Um, And so for me, I think it's just that intuitiveness is really about exploring with the the paint or the material that I'm using, Um, really just letting myself have freedom with it, not trying to make things look a certain way. Um, So as somebody with anxiety and depression, probably due to, you know, obviously a lot of the the things that I write about. One thing that's really helpful for me is giving myself that freedom and that time to kind of play, maybe get in touch with certain emotions I'm having and try to work through those while I paint rather than, you know, me trying to paint or draw something that is supposed to, you know, like a a flower even. Like I know what a flower is supposed to look like. If I try to paint a flower and it's not, you know, that perfect flower, <laughs> I am such a perfectionist <laughs> that I, it, it will just make me shut down, right? And I won't finish the painting or I'll, you know, be yelling at myself the whole rest of the day, like, wow, you suck as an artist and you can't do this. Whereas I found with, you know, abstract painting specifically, it really helps me get over some of that anxiety and perfectionism. And I can just kind of let myself, you know, be a little bit, I guess I like to say, just let myself be work through that emotion or just have fun or, you know, do whatever. So that's, I guess, how I would kind of describe that practice for me. Was it a conscious effort to learn how to trust your gut and your intuition or did you kind of stumble into it intuitively? (laughs) Kind of both. In some ways, it kind of just happened, I guess you would almost say out of the blue. So my husband, unfortunately, in 2018 had two Widowmaker heart attacks. He was only 30. Um, it was really just a whole crazy experience. Um, and for me, what had happened, so I was I was there when it happened and I actually did CPR on him and then called 911. And the trauma from that experience and essentially, I mean, he was in a way, you know, sort, sort of almost dead when that happened. He wasn't breathing. He had turned blue. Um, they you know, it took them a very long time to find and or get a pulse on him, all of that. And so it was, you know, obviously extremely traumatizing when somebody that close to you, you know, has an event like that happen. And so when we got back from the hospital two months later, I knew that I, you know, I was really struggling trauma wise. I was going to therapy, but I was also trying to work full time. It was just really crazy and overwhelming. And I felt like I needed more you know, to do physically and like at home rather than just therapy. And so I started trying to paint and I think I was painting like an animal, like a specific animal, maybe like a deer or a fox or something. And I could not, I just could not get it to look right. (laughs) Right. Like I was talking about earlier, like I was trying to do something and add the detail and it was just really looking horrible. And I got so frustrated with myself 
and my hands were shaking. I just really, I just could not do it. And so I had remembered that a couple years prior, I had, I think in college, maybe I had done a couple abstract pieces and I was like, you know what, I'm going to try that and just see if that helps me. And it did. And Hmm. that, you know, I, I was able to paint and just get all of that emotion that day and that overwhelm that I was feeling out. The painting itself was horrible. I, I threw it away. I do not have it. I, I wish now that I had kept it maybe, but it, I mean, it was just hor- like, it, I think it just turned in, you know, to a big blob of nothing um, gray or something from all the colors I was using that were not working. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I do wish that I had it, but I'm, I'm glad that I, um, you know, that I at least tried and I went for it because that I essentially then any time that I was, you know, struggling with some of those similar feelings, I would go into our cold basement and I would just start painting stuff. And eventually it kind of led into this art practice and, and, you know, and more people getting interested in the paintings and that sort of thing. And so that's kind of how, how that started for me. So it kind of, it, it did come randomly, but at the same time, I think it was really what I needed. And I, yeah, I'm very very grateful for the practice of painting for sure. Yeah. What does it feel like to have a book on, on such sensitive, um, vulnerable material out there for anybody to just kind of pick up and, and pick through? Uh, it's terrifying. <laughs> I already told, you know, like my, my mom and my grandparents like, Hey, maybe don't read it <laughs> or you can, but like, let's have a nice conversation about it. You know, it's like, it's very, um, it's very scary, but at the same time, it's at least for me needed. And I felt just like I needed to do it and I just needed to get the words out there. And, you know, I mean, unfortunately, I think I I know, I guess for a fact that I am not the only person who feels these feelings. Right. And so I think for me, it was also just knowing that you know, I know that I'm not alone in this, but there were definitely times when I felt like I was and, you know, having, you know, whether it's somebody that I know or somebody, you know, randomly who picks up the book, like this would have been helpful for me at that time to kind of read through, you know, these struggles and also joys and, you know, that you can still have a full life despite whatever disease or traumas, you know, you experience, like, you know, there is still hope. Again, the book is called These Are My Flowers, My Story of Composting Trauma into Colorful Art. You can learn more about it at MedoraFry.com, and that's spelled F-R-E-I. Medora, in the book, you talk about asking your parents to describe you as a child um, in three words. Your mom said you were curious, creative, and full of energy. Your dad said happy, quiet, and outdoorsy. Uh, what are your three words now? from Medora? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think the first would at least have to be compassionate. Um, I I think now, unfortunately, I would say, you know, tired rather than, rather than full of energy. I wish I, when I read that, I was like, oh boy, that, that feels like a lifetime ago. Um, and I, I think curious, you know, I really, um, I enjoyed storytelling. I love hearing other people's stories. Uh, I love, you know, reading about other people's stories and and watching documentaries and just learning and, you know, trying to continue to grow. So maybe those three, (laughs) curious, (laughs) compassionate, and tired. (laughs) Pretty, Pretty good. Talk to me, Medora, about ASMR. Uh, In addition to painting and writing, you talk about practicing yoga and these breathing techniques and then also um, this autonomous sensory meridian response. This is a tingling sensation that begins at the scalp and moves down uh, the back of the neck and into the upper spine. And some people have triggers for this um, that that a lot of people don't. <laughs> so what are what triggers your your ASMR? That's a great question. So 
for me, the way I stumbled in, into ASMR was very random because it was just through YouTube. And that's really mm-hmm. what I, I just, it, it sounds very strange, but the slurping it's just, noodles videos. Yeah. So, the, so like the whole like mouth sounds thing to me is, is more like an anti-trigger for me. Like I, I really dislike right. those. Um, there are certain like, yeah, certain other things I hate, but there's a couple of people like, it sounds so silly, but there's like this British woman who just has this really nice, like motherly voice. And just even her voice is just like very like comforting. And I don't always even get necessarily like the, you know, that full like tingle sensation, but I think just having that comfort or, you know, sometimes it's like those like spa videos or something, just watching somebody else get a facial. <laughs> um, like I said, it, you know, it kind of sounds strange, but it's just a, a good way for me at least to relax, especially after all of the trauma that has happened in my life. I think sleep has, and like insomnia has been a major um, like repercussion from that. And so, and especially right after like the events that happened with my husband, um, I I really like maybe was getting three hours of sleep per night for like months. And so having things that help calm me down. So like I said, yoga, breathing breathing treatments and breathing exercises, and then ASMR, it kind of just helps quiet my mind down a little bit so that I can actually relax and then hopefully go to sleep. So that's just been one helpful thing for me that I'm not sure how many people in North Dakota, you know, or or our area kind of know about it. But if it, you know, even just me randomly mentioning it, you know, if somebody is curious and wants to look it up, maybe somebody can, you know, get benefit from that and hopefully be able to fall asleep more easily. North Dakota artist Medora Fry about her book, These Are My Flowers, My Story of Composting Trauma into Colorful Art. You can read about it and learn more about Medora the artist at MedoraFry.com. And Fry is spelled F-R-E-I. And included in the book, there is an intuitive painting session. Uh, This is uh, just a few ways that you can learn how to trust your own gut and create a painting at least uh, similar in style or in intention to Medora's work. Medora, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Ashley. It's great talking with you. Still to come on Main Street, the importance of diversity in the theater. But first, this news. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. A House Finance and Taxation Committee is considering a bill that would provide funds to expand the 988 crisis hotline in North Dakota. Bill 2149 would create a tax on cell phone service lines to fund the hotline with a maximum charge of 30 cents per device per month. Fargo Senator Kathy Hogan says the fund will allow the Department of Health and Human Services to expand their 988 services to include text and chat options and to provide a living wage for hotline operators. Philosophically, I oppose fears, but I recognize that without a funding source, this essential piece of infrastructure would probably not be considered for general fund dollars. When 9-11 was first established, many opposed the fees on phones. But because of the direct relationship, when you call this number, you get a response. It builds an infrastructure. James Nopik is manager of addiction and prevention programs and policies for HHS. He says future plans for the 988 services will save North Dakota money on other emergency services. The next phase is to have mobile crisis response teams that have licensed behavioral health professionals who are able to respond to a crisis This reduces some of that burden that law enforcement and first responders currently have in responding to behavioral health crisis that maybe don't require a law enforcement member or an ambulance to arrive for. The committee took no action at this time. Minnesota poultry producers and state officials are preparing for another round of avian influenza. Last year, Minnesota recorded 110 cases in poultry flocks. State Board of Animal Health veterinarian Shauna Voss says about 25 percent of those cases were in backyard flocks. And as more people choose to raise backyard chickens, Voss says bird owners need to take precautions. My advice for first-time bird owners and 
long-term bird owners as well is to just learn about biosecurity, make sure you've got a plan in place, and then just stick with that every single day. You know, biosecurity is that process to protect your birds from disease. At least 14 states have reported new cases of avian influenza in the past month. While Minnesota has not had a reported case since December, Voss expects the flu to return with spring waterfowl migration. And Minot's mayor says he's glad the North Dakota legislature is working to address the shortage of child care. Tom Ross says it is a critical issue when it comes to attracting workers. If we had good, affordable, quality child care in this town, we could probably get you know, 1,500 or 2,000 more employees. You know, uh, Monad Air Force Base, they have, they have a beautiful facility on the Monad Air Force Base. They have a waiting list of 175, just on the military side. Uh, and it's, and it's, it, it's like that across the board. Ross says the Minot City Council has created a committee to work on the issue of child care. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Being a teacher is no easy occupation. Classrooms tend to be very full, breaks are hard to come by, and the pay is not exactly the same as that of a neurosurgeon. But sometimes the work is the reward. And hey, it doesn't hurt to sometimes get an actual Award. Rebecca Meyer Larson is the winner of the Citation Award from the National Federation of State High School Associations. The Moorhead teacher has been an educator for more than 30 years, teaching English, coaching speech, and directing theater at Moorhead High. This nationwide award is the highest honor given to a coach or director. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today on Main Street. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the Citation Award. Yeah, wow. (laughs) Take me back to the moment you found out about this. Well, this is terrible, but I got an email about it, and I um, didn't read the entire email because it was in the middle of (laughs) teaching, and this is a really busy season for us, and as any teacher can tell you right now, our email inbox is flooded, and so I sort of read the first paragraph, and I thought, oh, this is one of those things where they say, congratulations, you've won something, and then will you send us $25 so your name will appear in some book? You know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. right? And Who's who? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I, I just sort of ignored it. And um, then the next day, Dean Haugo, my activities director, came down, and he's like, hey, Minnesota State High School League is trying to get a hold of you. <laughs> oh, you should probably give them a call. And that's how I found out about it. So I found out about it, but I didn't really understand it. And then, yeah, when the high school league calls, you go, oh, this is something. Yeah. Yeah. So this is something. What is it? What does it mean to be a recipient of the Citation Award? Wow. Well, it's humbling, for one. Um, what does it mean? How does it feel? Oh, I'm proud. I'm I'm proud. Okay, if I can be really honest, um, I feel like anybody who has managed to get through the last couple of years teaching in a public school hmm. through COVID and through the mental health crisis that we're seeing with our kids and um, the mass exodus that we see with teachers, mm-hmm. I think that every teacher could use a moment where they're like, hey, we see you, we, we notice what you're doing. And so I feel lucky and also maybe a little guilty that I'm the one that received it. Is that, is that a strange answer? But that's <laughs> So you're I, a woman who lives in the Midwest is what I'm hearing. Uh, and I, and I'm, I'm not trying to sound anything other than honest when I tell you that like, I am surrounded I by that. incredible teachers mm-hmm. in this building who are slogging through, and we're all doing the best we can, and especially – um, in the arts, when times get tough, the arts are cut, yeah. and there are, are teachers like me in buildings across Minnesota, across North Dakota, and across the nation. And to be the person that they chose to receive this award, um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm humbled by it, and I, I also I feel a little undeserving of it. But I'll take it. I'll take it for sure. And <laughs> I'm excited, I guess, if I have to talk about the thing I'm excited about. Like, I get to go to Seattle. Yeah. I get to go to Seattle and, and 
um, they're flying me there and they're putting me in a hotel and they're going to let my husband come too. And like, these are perks that, I'm sorry, teachers do not get. So I'm really happy. I'm happy about that. And um, any, ex- any excuse to dress up and, yeah. uh, and have a, a night in Seattle, I'll take yeah. it. Do you remember a moment when you said, this is it for me. This is, this is what I do. This is who I am. It's a big part of my identity. I like that you said this is who I am. I mean, this is who I am. I'm, I'm an artist and I'm a teacher and I'm an advocate for kids and mm. their voices. And it's a perfect, um, it's a it's a perfect job for people who uh, like to clap a lot for kids. And mm. I think that's, you know. There's little many moments, you know, there aren't, there aren't really big moments. Maybe when a show opens and it works and the kids are standing there on stage and the audience is applauding, you know, that's, a, that's a big moment. But to me, it's, those big moments don't, uh, they don't mean anything next to the moment when a kid figures out how to use a light board or um, a student who's really quiet. I had a moment like that today, actually. Super quiet kid. Can rarely hear them on stage. I usually have to move up two rows in order to hear their voice. They're just quieter. And today, in a scene, I could have moved back two rows. They were loud, and they were um, exuberant. And at the end of it, their class just lost it, clapping so loudly and and whooping and cheering because we all knew at that moment that like okay we're on five weeks now where we've rarely heard this person's voice Mm. and they were just loud and and that was a magical moment so to me it's a lot of little moments I'm lucky in that I coach um, speech and kids get to choose whatever they want to speak about so you know oftentimes it's a 30 second moment in a drama where somebody's speaking their truth about the reality of their upbringing or um, speaking out. Um, I have a, a girl right now on my team whose name is Hamida, and there's very few times that Hamida speaks that I don't, you can hear it in my voice right now, that I don't get a little overclimbed. She's just remarkable. Mm. And uh, She's doing a speech right now about in defense of public education. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's Nigerian. She tells a story about what it means to be a Muslim girl whose parents came to America for education and how she hates the way um, politicians demonize public education mm-hmm. and she hates the rhetoric surrounding it. And When she says, you know, uh, we, we need to defend public education because public education is my only way to an American dream, like those are the little moments that you're like, I'm so lucky, I'm so lucky to watch kids like that yeah. yeah you're making a difference huh they're making a difference yeah. earlier you described yourself as an artist as a teacher and didn't miss a beat you also said as an advocate yeah what do you mean by advocating for kids in school well I think that there are stories I hope that we're getting better I hope that my English classroom is getting better but for the most part when I think about my own education I even think about the first 20 years of of education the titles that we taught and the poetry that we taught and the stories that we listened to were largely um, spoken by cis white men and um I see that paradigm shifting and that's exciting it's really exciting to be um, a young teacher. I look at my, my classroom library and I see uh, a cross-section of, of voices. You know, there's part of that. It's the literature that I teach, but it's also um, allowing kids to speak their truth, allowing Hamida to talk about what it means to be a black Muslim girl in Moorhead, um, what it means uh, to be a, a trans student, um, and walk through the halls of not only Moorhead High School, but also this community. I'm an advocate for those kids, and I, I, I miss the mark a thousand times, you know, because look at me. I'm old. I mean, I'm late 50s. Um, I, I still have so much to learn. I think that it, we're lucky as teachers and that mm. we get to keep learning, and if you can roll back long enough and let them teach you, um, I'm an advocate for, for being a learner, I guess, mm. and letting those kids teach and believing their stories and 
letting them share their voices. As you are plotting out a school year of teaching English, of coaching speech, of directing theater, do you make a point to try to be responsive to what's happening in the students' lives or what's happening politically and and have them have an outlet for that? Or do you just pick whatever play is popular? The moment I start doing that is the moment I need to retire. You know, it's a a tricky thing because uh, if you look at the stage at Moorhead High School, it's a very white stage, and you walk through the halls of Moorhead High School, we are a a beautiful cross-section of students. So Mm. I have a long way to go, a long way to go, to be able to tell the kind of stories I'd like to tell in the theater. Um, And it's going to require that we create communities and places so that everybody can see themselves on stage. We're not there yet. Mm. We'll keep pushing and and keep hoping. Um, But yes, we're, we're always looking for the message. You know, why, why do we do this? We had a um, really great conversation, I think during Bonnie and Clyde, for example, about, about folklore and, and what we believe about the underprivileged and and what were the motivations of bandits like Bonnie and Clyde at that time. Right. Mm -hmm. Or if we're doing, we're doing a show like Rock of Ages, and let's be honest, like Rock of Ages, it felt so good to laugh during Rock of Ages. I stand behind that choice. But the conversations that you don't see while we're laughing at the ridiculousness of 1980s hairstyles and what have you <laughs> on the stage, the best part is is the conversations that we're having about about these songs and about the lyrics and, and about our need to laugh after the pandemic yeah. and, and to come back together and I hope I hope that that's what the kids take away more than the applause yeah. and more than sold out crowds. Well, and even something like Bonnie and Clyde talking that undercurrent of society, but also gun violence, yes. which is a very real threat mm-hmm. to students in this day and age. My favorite moment in Bonnie and Clyde it was at the very end when all of our actors cease to be characters in the show and they become actors and any gun that was used on the stage was dropped they all walked across dropped 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 and there was a pile of guns prop guns in the middle of the stage uh the last image of the real image of Bonnie and Clyde after the shootout and the lights fade on our actors playing Bonnie and Clyde and the picture of Bonnie and Clyde and the stage is bare and there's a pile of weapons on the middle of the stage and the last thing you see is a very 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 slow fade those moments um take my breath away and i hope that's that's what they hold on to did you have to fight for that i can see administration or parents not wanting to talk about problems i've been very lucky i'm not going to say that uh there haven't been times when Shows have been questioned, certainly. Um, Rock of Ages, for example, was not my original choice. My original choice was not originally okay, but Rock of Ages ended up being um, the better choice. I think I've been lucky in that I have department colleagues who support what I do, who understand what I do, and I've been around a long time. I've been doing this a long time. I hope that there's a measure of trust in that. But I think there's also it's educating your community they know, for example, when they're going to go see, um, for example, Newsies, uh, they know long before the lights go down our take on it, if they're reading the director's notes. I think about a lot, Little Shop of Horrors, and after that terrible election cycle and the, the madness, really, what that was the election cycle, for example, of, of Little Shop of Horrors. I'll never forget that first weekend after the show opened and the lights went down and nobody felt like laughing. All of a sudden, it, it didn't feel funny anymore right and and there's lots of times with that when I'm teaching theater and we all just have to sit in a circle and just be okay and be there for one another and talk through that stuff the kids are lucky I hope that the community senses that I hope they read the director's notes I hope they understand what we're focusing in on I know that we do our best in advertising for example and and from the beginning long before we ever audition students we spend a lot of time talking about like this is why this is the why of the show this is what we're hoping that people will take away from this production 
the measure of trust that administration has given me in that, I know how lucky I am because I belong to a lot of groups and communities where they we talk about as high school theater directors the shows that we put forth and more than ever before definitely more than 20 years 30 mm-hmm. years ago I never saw the kind of censorship in the classroom that I'm seeing now and the, by classroom I also mean the stage because that's a co-curricular classroom space yeah how do you talk to your students about censorship they talk you know that's that's the tricky part they talk and I listen a lot mm. and nod um, I I, th- I hope I ask more questions than give answers. I, I told you before, and I stand by, by it. Like um, I've missed so many things. I'm so busy as a mom and a teacher and a director. I miss so much. They are more worldly. They see more than I do, especially when you think about what they say on social media. I hope I just ask better questions and listen. I just listen a lot. What's your approach, Rebecca, if, if it's possible to capture it in a, a simple sentence? But, you know, you have directed so many plays and musicals. You have coached speech. We're talking 29 individual champions, 232 medalists, 16 national finalists for the speech team, five state championships for the whole team. At such a vulnerable age, when there's such a pressure to just fit in Mm -hmm. and to be the same and to not stand out, Mm -hmm. that's a very tough egg to crack. You just create sacred circles. I think that's a big part of it. I think that there's a community of kids that um, I hope I can help sustain, but in a lot of ways, they do it, right? They, they, They support one another. They listen to one another. They're kind to one another. I think that people understand that in the, the sacred circle, whether it be the speech team or theater crew, that um, they maintain kindness and generosity of spirit, and and they also belong to, speaking of sacred, a, a sacred circle of storytellers. Like mm-hmm. Storytelling is the way we pass on everything that we believe and value, and that's what we do. And they've created this family of of humans who are kind to one another and let that happen I just am lucky to be able to stand on the outside of the circle and keep it going and when I see the circle starting to turn in on itself on itself to be the person in the middle going hey let's remember who we are Uh, everything I believe in the world is that as artists we have a moral obligation to create more than the rest of the world can destroy and you are a hundred percent right um, high school can be an incredibly destructive place. Like, think about your own high school experiences. Like, you want to get people talking? Go back. Talk about high school. Nope. <laughs> like, you, you, they hear a lot. Like, these are the best days of your lives. That's a lie. It's such a lie. <laughs> it gets so much better, right? But I think that the circles that they um, are a part of, I hope that they make a promise to themselves that when they graduate from this program, they keep seeking circles like that, mm-hmm. circles of people who are kind to one another and who listen to each other's stories and uh, listen without judgment. And I also think that I think about my son. Um, I've been lucky enough. I have three children um, who've gone through the speech and theater program. And my son, Finn, is an, he's an interesting kid. I, he definitely has taken a, a rockier road to get to graduation. And I mean, he, he did it everything. He did lacrosse. He did football. Uh, he didn't do school always very well. And, and last year, he showed up hmm. at an audition, and I thought, what is this? This is what happens when I quit pestering him, maybe, <laughs> to do speech and theater. He shows up. He shows up and does theater, and he was so drawn to the kindness in the crew there that he came back, and he did speech. And the thing I think I'm most grateful for as a parent is the parents that parent Finn, if that makes sense. Finn's a better person because he knows Hamida's story. Finn is a better person because round after round after round in speech, he hears the stories of marginalized people. He hears the story of people down on their luck. He understands what it is to feel depressed or to feel disenfranchised or to feel angry or frustrated. And I couldn't possibly put enough books in his hands to help him understand how much bigger the world is than Moorhead, Minnesota. But those people do. 
they're not gonna listen. he's not gonna listen to his mom right he'll listen to Hamida he'll listen to Jack he'll listen to Cece he'll listen to Greta Olivia those stories make him a better person and I just have to just keep the funneling the kids into my room and they do it for each other Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for coming in. That was Moorhead High School a teacher, speech coach, and theater director Rebecca Meyer Larson about winning the Citation Award from the National Federation of State High School Associations. Natural North Dakota is next. On Prairie Public Primetime TV tonight. On great performances. Jan Rikarski. Messenger of the Polish people to their government. Messenger of the Jewish people to the world. The man who told of the annihilation of the Jewish people while there was still time to stop it. Remember this. Remember this. Watch David Strothern in a solo performance as Polish resistance fighter Jan Karski on great performances. Remember this tonight at 8 Central, 7 Mountain on Prairie Public. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. How many of you are a little bit sore from shoveling all weekend? Okay, spring is really, really close, meteorologically speaking anyway. Here is biologist Chuck Allura with this week's Natural North Dakota on the spring equinox. The sun has some power these days, and it'll come as no surprise to some of you that the spring equinox and the first day of spring is coming up Monday, March 20th. That day, and during the fall equinox in September, the sun will pass directly overhead on the equator. Our changing seasons are not due to changes in the distance between the Earth and the Sun. It's due to changes in the directness of the Sun's rays on the Earth. If the Earth's rotation was perpendicular to the plane of its orbit, we wouldn't have much, if any, variation in seasons. But as most of us learned in school, the Earth is tilted on its axis by 23.5 degrees. As a result, variations in the directness of the sunlight hitting the Earth change throughout the year giving us the seasonality here in temperate zones. While we in the Northern Hemisphere are celebrating the first day of spring, it's the first day of fall in the Southern Hemisphere, and perhaps a little less celebrated. As the name implies, the equinox also provides nearly equal amounts of day and night throughout the world. Sunrise and sunset on the solstice in Bismarck on the equinox will be 7.44 a.m. and 7.56 p.m., that's 12 hours and 12 minutes between sunrise and sunset. Next month on the 20th, sunrise and sunset in Bismarck will be 6.44 a.m. and 8.39 p.m. respectively. That's a little over an hour and a half more time between sunrise and sunset. And the days will continue to lengthen until the summer solstice on June 21st, when we'll enjoy almost 15 hours between sunrise and sunset, and the sun will not set in Bismarck until 9.42 p.m. There'll probably be a few bumps in the road, but spring is on its way. So get ready to enjoy some warmer and longer days over the next few months. Equinoxes and solstices may occur with little fanfare these days, but for much of human history they were major benchmarks of the year. Some of the better-known structures around the world built to mark these events include Stonehenge in Great Britain, Newgrange in Ireland, Karnak in France, and Chichen Itza in Mexico. There's also a modern-day medicine wheel in Valley City, and Turtle Mountain has Mystical Horizons, a modern-day Stonehenge. I'm Chuck Lara. Natural North Dakota is supported in part by the NDSU Central Grasslands Research Extension Center. You can get Natural North Dakota essays delivered to your inbox every week. Sign up for the email newsletter at prairiepublic.org. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. This is Dakota Datebook for March 13th. People have proven remarkably adaptable to the extreme winter weather of the northern Great Plains. It's easy to overlook one item that has kept people warm for almost 250 years, and North Dakotans have a teenager from Maine to thank for it. On this date, in 1877, 
19-year-old Chester Greenwood was granted a patent for Chester Greenwood's Champion Ear Protectors. According to local lore, the 15-year-old loved to ice skate on the frozen ponds near his home, but he had a problem. His ears got cold. Chester was allergic to the wool caps back then, so was unable to skate as long as he wanted. His ears simply got too cold. After giving it some thought, Chester asked his grandmother to sew beaver fur onto a wire band that would go over his head. The fur pads covered his ears and kept him warm. His ice skating friends originally made fun of him, but he didn't care. He could skate as long as he wanted. His friends soon wanted earmuffs of their own. In truth, Chester didn't exactly invent the earmuff. He added a hinge that kept the ear coverings properly situated over the ears. Chester not only kept ears warm, but he kept his town employed for the next 60 years with his earmuff factory. By the time he died in 1937, Chester had made a fortune supplying his ear protectors to the United States Army during World War I. His earmuff company, along with his telephone exchange and bicycle factory, made him Farmington, Maine's major employer. Farmington still calls itself the earmuff capital of the world. Chester had a knack for creating gadgets that made life just a little easier. His earmuffs were the first of over 100 patents he secured. His inventions varied from the advertising matchbox to a new type of spark plug. But his earmuff is the most famous, and the one for which North Dakotans can be most thankful. So on the first day of winter, which Maine has designated Chester Greenwood Day, remember to raise a toast to the man who kept our ears warm. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Carol Butcher. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Bill Dean, Realtor with Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate Alliance Group in Bismarck, specializing in VA loans, home valuations, and commercial properties. Bill can be reached at BillDeanHomes.com. That's it for this Monday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow on the show, writer and environmental educator Taylor Brorby is coming back to North Dakota to talk about his book, Boys and Oil, Growing Up Gay in a Fractured Land. He joins us to talk about how the book has been received and to comment on some of the laws that the state legislature is considering concerning gay and trans rights. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.